So that's going to be the teaching tomorrow night. I also feel um, the desire to invite you all to come to the next gathering. The next gathering will be in January, January the 9th through the 15th, and it will be in the city of Antioch in Turkey. In the biblical time, it was in Syria, but it will be in, 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 in Antioch. And uh, I think we already have a sense that God is taking us there, not only because the mission to the Gentiles was birthed out of Antioch, but even more so, perhaps, the dynamic of reconciliation between the historic churches and the role that Antioch plays. Do you know that there are five patriarchs of Antioch? None of them are in Antioch. So that just gives you a little um, introduction and foretaste into what I think is going to be a really significant time next January in Antioch. I, I think we have only a small understanding of what God may want to do there. So start saving your money to come with us to Antioch next January. I feel like the teaching tonight is... is um, a continuation on the teaching that um, we gave in January of this last year in Frisco, Colorado on apprenticeship to Jesus foundational understandings. And for those of you who are there, you remember in that teaching there was a section at the end that we didn't have time to get to. And I'd like to try to give that section a little bit um, of the time it uh, warrants tonight. Okay, that teaching's available on the website, so if you want to look at that, because you'll hear among us this ministry apprenticeship to Jesus, and that was a teaching outlining some foundational understandings that are part of that. The teaching tonight is entitled, Practicing the Presence of God. Practicing the Presence of God. Um, I wonder if you'll join me uh, once, one more time in prayer. Lord, thank you for all that you've given us today. You are the bread of life. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you will feed us with the bread that came down from heaven. We rely upon you. We trust you. Teach us, even in these moments, more of what we need to know to be able to walk with you, our God and Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what do we really mean by practicing the presence of God? Is that in the Bible? What's that concept that we're working with? And um, I think the biblical terminology that we'll talk about in, uh, for a couple of minutes is Praying without ceasing. The biblical injunction to us is to pray without ceasing. Now, when we hear that, it's easy to think, well, what is that anyway, praying without ceasing? Who would actually want to pray without ceasing? How do you even do that, particularly with life's demands? And so 
that has actually been um, a subject of discussion throughout the history of the church. What on earth is praying without ceasing? And why is that actually attractive? Now, when we think about what praying without ceasing is, it can come into our minds, oh, this is about interceding for the missionaries. So we can think of praying as going through a long list and how on earth would you do that even for an hour, much less for a day, or without ceasing. What is prayer? Prayer in its most foundational form is simply coming into the presence of God and remaining there. That's what it is. It's being in God's presence, interacting with him, and the best picture that we have of that is Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before the fall. We find the Garden of Eden, we find God, we find Adam and Eve, and they walk with God, and they were naked, and they were not ashamed. And their constant, continual experience was one of being in the presence of their creator, communing with their creator, hearing from him, interacting with him. That was their natural state. Now that's the natural state for which you and I are created. We are actually created to pray without ceasing. That's how we came off the assembly line. That's how we've been manufactured. That's how we were designed to pray without ceasing. That's what life is all about, praying without ceasing. And we um, hit that this morning, didn't we, in our Lectio Divina time, in those five verses at the beginning of John 17. This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So what is life eternal? Life eternal, there's a part of life eternal that's duration, lasts forever. There's also a part of life eternal that is qualitative. It is eternal in quality. So what does it really mean to have a good time? Let's go have a good time. What does it really mean to have a good time? It really means to pray without ceasing. It means to be in the presence of our creator. That's what we were created to do. That is life in its fullness. That is meaning. That is purpose. That is joy. That is fulfillment. To know God and to be in his presence in an unbroken way. That's natural for us. So what happened? Well, what happened is our um, first parents went away. They went away. It's natural for the human being to ask the question, where is God? God seems so far away. That's kind of a natural question for the human being. And it shows how um, profound the damage is that has happened to us because of sin. The damage is profound and extensive. Because we ask the question, where is God? But God's question to Adam and Eve was, where are you? I'm here. I've always been here. Where did you go, Adam? And so our first parents went away, and so have we. We have gone away. 
we have gone away from that which is life eternal. And we have done that through our sin, but our sin is compacted and underscored and reinforced by the sin all around us. We have been born into a lost race. And we are not in touch with the fact of how profoundly extensive the damage and distortion is within us and with which we live, the results of sin. So this damage and distortion has taken place throughout our being and has left us in the condition where the thought of praying without ceasing feels unnatural. And the thought of being on our own and having a good time feels natural. So that for which we were created feels unnatural, and that which is a reflection of our lostness feels natural. That's our state. That state has left us in this condition. Whenever there is a brief awareness of God, Every now and then, human beings are able to have a brief awareness of God. Whenever we have a brief awareness of God, it tends to be short-lived and easily broken. And there tends to be a long period before we regain another awareness of God. So again, the condition for which we were created, namely continual awareness of God, we get little snappets of it and then a long absence, another little snap it, and then a long absence. Now, what is the way back? The way back is the Christian life. This is what the Christian life is all about. The Christian life is a pilgrimage. The Christian life is a pilgrimage where we are on our way home. The Christian life is played out in the parable of the prodigal son. What was the deal with the prodigal son? One day he came to his senses enough to know, here I am without any money. If I were a slave in the house of my father, I could at least eat what was given to the pigs. I will go back to the home of my father. And that is the journey that you and I are on. It's a journey home. We're being called home. The father is calling us home. What does home look like? Prayer without ceasing. What does home look like? This is life eternal. That you might know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. So we're on a journey back. Now on that journey back, first of all, it's a long journey. It's a long journey. Why? Because the distance that we have come away from home is a long distance. We've come a long way away from home. There has been extensive, profound damage in our being 
So we're a long way away. And one experience doesn't do it. One experience can be really good, but we're talking about a process. How do we learn about this process? Through apprenticeship to Jesus. That's how we learn it. Why did Jesus come? He came to teach us the way back home and how to live once we get there. Now, in this journey back home, which is a journey toward praying without ceasing, that's the destination. Now, there are different ways to express that. In this journey, there's our part and there's God's part. So there's something that we have to do. This isn't only God. So when people ask you to pray for them, listen to what it is they're asking you to pray because there's some prayers for other people you should not pray. They need to pray that prayer. I remember in one meeting, a young woman came to me and said, please pray for me that I won't be impatient. No. <laughs> your impatience requires decisions on your part that God's not going to make for you and I'm not going to make for you. You have to make those decisions. So there is a part in this journey that's our part. And then there's a part in this journey that's God's part. So it's, in, it's really important that we know what is our part and what is God's part. Now let's talk for a minute about our part. One of the things about the human being is that we have an incredible capacity to learn and to store up that knowledge. A great example of that is language. We have the capacity to learn a language. We've all learned a language, at least one. And that language has been stored within us. So I'm here speaking to you in the English language. I'm not thinking what is a subject, what is a verb. What I'm, it's, it's a, I'm thinking what is it I want to say. I'm not thinking about the language. The language is stored within me. It's automatic. It's subconscious. Even how to pronounce the words. You know, the German R. I can't make the sound. The minute I say something in German, they know I'm not a native speaker. So even the subtleties of the sounds of, of English. You know, when you speak English, you can immediately tell that you're an American. The subtleties of the sound. When a person who's born and raised in Texas speaks, you can tell that they were born and raised in Texas. All of that is learned. It's all learned. Now, think of how much we store. When do we begin to store knowledge? In the womb. In the womb. We begin to store up knowledge subconsciously. And by the time we get to be a few years old, there is tons and tons and tons of responses that we have learned, that we have stored up within us. And many, many of these responses are destructive to us, but we don't know that. See, we don't, we don't know that. And so we enter life, we enter teenage, we enter adult life with 
much stored up within us that we think is normal, it's actually destructive. It's actually destructive. So we've stored up that knowledge and we've stored up that learning. We have learned deep habits that keep us from God. These are habits, but they are strong habits that have been deeply reinforced and that keep us from God. We need extensive, deep process of unlearning and relearning, a process of unlearning and relearning. And this process, the Holy Spirit will not do it to us. And the Holy Spirit will not do it for us. But the Holy Spirit will do it with us. So the good news is we can be redeemed. We can be transformed. We can be delivered from these habits. But it's going to take a process. And it's going to take a process that is driven by our decisions. See, when we were created, God created our heart. The heart, I want to suggest to you, is the center of the will or intentionality. That's what your heart is. The capacity to make a decision, the capacity for choice, the capacity for motive. And so when God created my heart and your heart, he created it with a door on it. And that door has a lock. And that lock has one key. And God created the lock and he created the key and he gave the key to you. Isn't that scary? God created my heart and he gave me the key. And God will not violate my decision-making capacity. Because once he does that, he takes away my humanity. Because part of being human, by the way, did you know that it's glorious to be human? You know, when you talk about sin, sometimes we can get into this, well, I, I'm just, I remember a young woman in a car, we're driving across Germany, and she just graduated from a Christian college. And she made some statement about herself that was so contemptuous. And I, I, I wanted to stop the car. Do you know that you are a glorious being? created in the image of the living God. He created the sun and the moon and the mountains and the seas and the animals. And then to crown his creation, he created you in his own image, a little lower than the angels. He filled you with glory and honor. To be a human being is a glorious, a glorious thing. 
I am so thankful I am a human being created in God's own image, created to have dominion over what God created. God created me and you together to have dominion over his creation. So we are glorious beings. But we are fallen beings. And the capacity to know God involves the capacity to worship, the capacity to love. And in order for that to be authentic, we have to be free to make our own decisions. So God waits. He waits. He waits for us. God is inviting us to eternal life. God is inviting us to pray without ceasing, but he honors our decision not to want it. He honors that decision, and he waits for us. So here's the question. How hungry are we? How hungry are we for God? And sometimes we have to go through the desert of not knowing God or being without God. Now, I'm not talking about not being a Christian. I'm talking about being a Christian but living in the wasteland. That's what I'm talking about. You see, we have created Christians who know how to be with other Christians, but they don't know how to be with God. So God is calling us to more. And God is saying, look, if you want to live in the superficiality all around you, if you want to live in the vocabulary without the reality, then I'm going to wait for your soul to get so hungry and so thirsty and so shriveled up that you are hungry for more of me. Oh, brothers and sisters in Antioch Network, may God visit us with a hunger for God, with a hunger for God, and a heart to walk in his ways and to unlearn what we need to unlearn and to learn the things that we need to learn. Now, in what I'm saying tonight, it could be that I say something that doesn't fit with your theology. And I just want to say, I do not want to be, my purpose here is not to be, um, what's, the, what's the right word? I, I, I don't want to do that. So you don't have to agree with what I'm saying. I give you full permission not to agree. I'm simply sharing with you my own understanding. So here's an understanding I have. What is the difference between praying without ceasing, abiding in Christ, and being filled with the Spirit. What is the difference? Because we're supposed to do them all. What is the difference between praying without ceasing, abiding in Christ, and being filled with the Spirit? My understanding is there's no difference. That's my understanding. Can a person pray without ceasing and not abide in Christ? Can a person pray without ceasing and not be filled with the Holy Spirit? Can a person be filled with the Holy Spirit and not abide in Christ? So my understanding is that those three word pictures are parallel and speak to the same condition. Again, if that doesn't feel comfortable with you, I don't in any way want to kind of impose that on you. I'm sharing my own understanding. Now, we want to talk, because we're going to get here to God's part, 
And when we get to God's part, of course, we get to the Holy Spirit. So a couple of more things about the Holy Spirit. Again, I'm sharing my own, my own perspective. You don't have to agree. God is not part of the physical world. God created the physical world, and God can enter the physical world anytime he wants to. But God typically is not part of the physical world. He's part of the unseen world. Therefore, when we think about the Holy Spirit, we don't want to think primarily about something that we feel. But I don't really feel that the Holy Spirit is here. Or I'm talking to the Holy Spirit, but I don't feel that he's around. The Holy Spirit is around. He's here. But he's not accessible to our physical senses typically. He can be whenever he wants to be, but not typically. So we can be sitting in a room all on our own and not feel anything, and we can pray to the Holy Spirit. And our prayer might go something like this. Holy Spirit, I want to come present to you. I can't see you. And I can't touch you. And I can't hear you. And I can't smell you. And I can't taste you. But I believe that you're here. Holy Spirit, come and fill me. Now, I pray, typically, for the filling of the Holy Spirit every morning, part of my morning prayer time. And I want to talk to you more about that, some more specifics about that in a minute or two. And when I get through praying for the filling of the Holy Spirit, I have this incredible sense that the Holy Spirit is there. But whether I have the sense or not is not the issue. He's there. So... This learning to do the things that we need to do, this learning of the way home, that's the journey that we're all on, back to the home of the Father, is a journey where we need to learn to rely moment by moment on the Holy Spirit, regardless of whether or not we're feeling anything. Now, here's another thing about the Holy Spirit that to me is really important. Again, you don't have to agree. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is not a power. I get concerned, just me, I get concerned when I'm in context, where I get increasingly the feeling that people are somehow striving after some kind of spiritual power. Because when we enter the, when we enter the unseen world, the unseen world is divided into two parts. One part of the unseen world is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the righteous angels. That's the part of the unseen world. There's another part of the unseen world that is inhabited by spiritual beings that are in rebellion against God and represent the powers of darkness. And when we go into that unseen world, we want to make really sure, really sure, that we're over here in the Father, the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit. And that's why that prayer that Amy was referring to today, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, is a powerful prayer. It is a key prayer in spiritual warfare. If we are going to do the work of God in Turkey or in Bosnia or in Cyprus or in Germany or wherever it is, we need to learn how to live under the covering of the triune God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The heaven and earth is full of his glory. Another prayer I love to pray is Patrick's breastplate. I bind unto myself today the strong name of the Trinity. Talk about an apostolic leader out of the historic church. Patrick, 5th century, apostle to Ireland. He was tearing down pagan altars. And through this one man, a church was born that even today is known as an incredibly living, powerful church in its day. And Patrick's breastplate is such an awesome statement. It is so triune. I bind unto myself today the strong name of the Trinity. And so Christ-centered. Christ be in me. Christ be with me. Christ above me. Christ beneath me. Christ around me. Christ. Now, he was a man who knew how to live over here. Now, the Holy Spirit is a person. When we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we're filled with a person. We're filled with a person. We're filled with, indeed, with a person who has power. But why is it so important that he's a person? Many reasons, but let me tell you this. I'm getting to my next point here. It is my opinion that the most foundational work the Holy Spirit does is to transform you and me into the likeness of Christ. Let me give you another thought about the Holy Spirit that's really for tomorrow night. The Holy Spirit, I'm not going to start a new denomination on this. Just think about this. The Holy Spirit doesn't do anything that is not in preparation for the return of Christ in glory. Christ will return in glory, and the Holy Spirit is here to prepare the way. Now, the a foundational work in preparing the way for the return of Christ is to complete the church and mature the church. And the Holy Spirit's role in doing that is to transform you and me into the likeness of Jesus. That's what he's doing. So the filling of the Holy Spirit. Don't talk to me about the filling of the Holy Spirit that is decoupled from character. Now, the Holy Spirit does all kinds of things, and it comes upon people who are not yet mature. That's easy to understand. But when that happens, the result is all kinds of things going askew. We don't want that. So the work that the person of the Holy Spirit 
in its mo his most foundational ministry wants to do is conform us to the likeness of Christ. And the more we are conformed to the likeness of Christ, the more we are mature in the character of Christ, the more we can bear the works of power that the Holy Spirit will do and wants to do because we can cope with the response that those works of power will bring. 1 Corinthians 13, the ultimate work of the Holy Spirit is to make us like Jesus. Okay, the way back to God, God's part, we've already talked about it, haven't we? God's part is to respond to the heart decisions that we make by filling us with the Holy Spirit, by empowering us with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us the power to do what we cannot do in our own strength. He gives us the power. So again, this condition that we're in of pervasive lostness requires decisions on our part. As we make those heart decisions, the Holy Spirit comes in with his empowerment. And the result of that process, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, is the gradual transformation of the inner person into the likeness of Christ. Another foundational understanding, the Christian life or this journey back home is not in the first instance about doing. If when you hear Christ's commands, the first thing you think is doing, you haven't yet gotten to the essence of his commands. The activity of the Holy Spirit or apprenticeship to Jesus, the result of that is the transformation of the person. So the most important thing with you and me is not what am I doing, but who is the person I am becoming? Because as I become the kind of person who is like Jesus, what's going to happen to my activities? They are going to be like him. And another way to describe that is they're going to be obedience. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord and walks in his ways. So as the Holy Spirit empowers us day by day, moment by moment, week by week, we learn to live a life that is described by walking in the ways of God. And the result of that will be fruit, fruit, brothers and sisters, fruit beyond anything we can imagine. And we will watch more and more the Holy Spirit doing things through us, and we'll think, it's amazing. It's just amazing. Look at what the Holy Spirit is doing. You know, we didn't do anything. This wasn't even our idea. We didn't even have the idea to even do it and the Holy Spirit is doing this and now let me go for a week and be with Jesus because the more I can be with Jesus the more that releases the Holy Spirit to do his um, work okay let me try to get practical and then we'll have more practical and then we'll have time for questions so back to praying without ceasing or back to abiding in Christ, or back to being filled with the Holy Spirit moment by moment. 
It begins, or a, a key activity is to set our minds on God. So we set our minds on God, but then very quickly we forget. Because, have you ever noticed how your mind works? Your mind doesn't stay on one thing very long at all. Your mind goes from one thing to another. So when I say I have something on my mind, what I mean is my mind keeps coming back to that thing. I don't stay on that thing. My mind goes. So the key to the disciplines is to keep bringing our mind back to God and reducing the gap. So it can, it can start off this way. Somebody told me I should have a quiet time every day. Okay, so I have a quiet time in the morning. I feel really good about that. I don't think about God again until I go to bed at night. Well, that's a start. But that's not praying without ceasing. That's not being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's not abiding in Christ. What I want to do is think about God twice a day. And once I get to the point where I'm thinking about God twice a day, I want to think about him three times a day. In other words, I want to narrow the gap between times when I think about God. Now, when you hear that, you may think, well, gee, that's not going to give any time for anything else. And, you know, that's got to be good news. <laughs> that's got to be good news. Can I grow to the point where my mind is continually with God. And actually, it doesn't mean that we can't think about anything else. It doesn't mean that we can't live a normal life. But it means there has been a transformation in our thoughts and in the other components of our life. So we need um, disciplines that return our mind. So what is that discipline for you? Have you ever read about Frank Laubach? He was a missionary in the Philippines. And he got to the point where he tried to get one second out of every minute his mind to go to God. I haven't read his book. I don't know how, if, if he if ever made that. I'm certainly not there. But what are the simple disciplines of life that you and I can use that return and that keep our minds returning back to God, returning back to God? Now, this is where we get into practicing the presence. That's what practicing the presence is about. We have to learn new habits. That's about practice. If you want to learn a language, it's about practice. If you want to learn the piano, it's about practice. If you want to learn to paint, it's about practice. If you want to learn to abide in the presence of God, it's about practice. There have to be disciplines. There have to be habits that we make the decision to instill that habit into our lives. So what is it in your daily routine? What are the activities? For me, in the morning, just to give an example, I typically have a dime in the morning for study. And one way I like to do is take my book of the year and I key the whole book, I key the whole book into the uh, word processor. And then I go back through it and pick out the key concepts and number them. I'm doing that now in Asian church history, preparation for Antioch. So uh, each point that I make, I don't allow myself any more than three lines. If it goes more than four, three lines, it's another point. Every time I finish a point, I can pray. 
It's a, it's a way for me to return my mind to God just in a moment or two. Now, that does, that's not part of your life. So what is it a part of your life that keeps your mind back? Another key uh, help in all this is what I call centering prayer. Now, Hannah tells me this is not the typical historical meaning in centering prayer. So, you know, if you've read all about that, probably what I'm going to say doesn't fit your category. But let, let, let me give you an example. I'm aware that I want to bring my mind back to God, but I don't quite know how to do it. There's all kinds of stuff going on around me. I need something that's simple that will refocus my mind. So for me, and I shared this with you in Frisco, it's three sets of four. So let me tell you again how that works for me. The three are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so I simply pray something four times to the Father, four times to the Son, four times to the Holy Spirit. For example, I will say, Father, I love you. Father, I love you. Father, I love you. Father, I love you. Lord Jesus, 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 I love you. Holy Spirit, I love you. Then you can change. Father, I trust you. Lord Jesus, I seek you. Holy Spirit, I rely upon you. It can be the Jesus prayer. Do you know the Jesus prayer that comes out of the Eastern Church? Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, that can be shortened to Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Or in some cases, just the word Jesus. Sometimes it's just one word. Maybe you're going through the day and you, you need something that's going to focus your mind or center your mind. One word, Jesus. Or maybe it's something God's speaking to you about in your life. Recently, God was speaking to me again. Through Galatians 2, 19 to 20, I have been crucified with Christ. I read, brothers and sisters, the most powerful, anointed book on baptism I have ever, ever read. It's by a Russian Orthodox scholar. Russian Orthodox. Can you imagine? See, I'm <laughs> revealing my prejudice. The most powerful book on baptism. Alexander Schmiemann is his name. Called, uh, it's called um, Water of Water and the Spirit. Wow, it's a powerful book. And through that book, God began to speak to me through Galatians 2.19.20. So I went through a time of using, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me and rose again to live in me, to be my life and my righteousness. Now, what is it that God is speaking to you about? All that can be part of what I'm referring to here as centering prayer. Um, now, I want to um, just say a word. This is an important concept in here of the things that block this process that we're talking about because there are things that block this process 
And a main area that blocks this process is compulsivities. We live in a world that is reinforcing, 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 reinforcing busyness, 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 busyness. And so it is typical that we have this compulsivity to do, compulsivity to do, compulsivity to do. And when we're not doing something, we feel bad about ourselves. If we're not talking on the cell phone, we feel bad about ourselves. Or if we're not doing something, even in Christian work. Now, there are other compulsivities. Compulsive action just kicks up. We need to know enough about our souls to recognize when compulsivities are kicking in and what the root of the compulsivities are. And that gets me into solitude. Each of these things could have a, its own message. How do I know my own soul? How do I know what my compulsivities are? I can be in the midst of compulsivities that are driving my life and I don't even know it. I'm not even aware of it. And when you ask me what is the root, what is driving that compulsivity, I can look at you cross-eyed. You know, what do you mean what's driving it? We don't know our own souls. And the reason we don't know our own souls is we've never been with our own souls. What, what a tragedy that we've never been with our own souls. We don't know our own souls. We don't know what the diseases of our souls are. We don't know what the mechanisms are that have cause these compulsivities. How do we begin to learn all that? I don't know of a better entry point into that than solitude. Brothers and sisters, we are breaking the principle of Sabbath. That's another example. We are breaking the principle of Sabbath, and that is causing widespread damage within us. Now, it doesn't, you know, you say Sunday doesn't work. Okay. Saturday doesn't work. The principle of Sabbath God is calling us to rest. God is calling us to quiet. God is calling us to the desert. God is calling us to time with him, extended time with him, unbroken time with him, time in his presence. We're even to the point where the very thought of time in his presence scares us. We don't know what we would do if we didn't have anything to do. That shows the extent of the damage within us. Let the Holy Spirit gently, beautifully, carefully, tenderly nudge you into a capacity of solitude where you're alone with God and alone with your own soul and allowing God to speak and showing you the roots of the things that are destructive and that he wants to heal you from. Now, it's time for questions, so let me close by just mentioning something that I wanted to talk more about. There'll, there'll come a day. From the words of Jesus in Matthew 12, I'm sorry, Mark 12, and also from a book by Dallas Willard called Renovation of the Heart. From those two sources, let me share with you a way to think about the human person, the components of the human person. Because if you understand the components that are a part of us, it will be very helpful in this process. What did Jesus say? They asked him, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered, love the Lord your God, here it comes, with all your heart, 
with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Right there, you have the components of the human personality. You have a heart. You have a soul. You have a mind. You have a body. And in your body resides your strength. And you are a social being because you have been created by a social God. God is a community. God is a community. God is social. He relates. The Father relates to the Son. The Father relates to the Spirit. And there's no jealousy because there's no sin. So there's no jealousy. There's no pride. There's no ambition. They submit to one another. They honor one another. They play their roles. And God has made you and me in his own image. Therefore, we're social beings. And therefore, part of our a part of our wounding is the wounding in our relationships. Now, what does it mean to be saved? Brothers and sisters, somewhere along the line we were taught that to be saved means your guilt of your sin is taken care of. The good news is that that's true. <laughs> that is what salvation is about, dealing with the guilt. But here's what we need to know. That is only, that is only a part of it. Biblical salvation is, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, not takes away the guilt, takes away the sin. He takes away the sin. That's the gospel of the kingdom, that Christ takes away the sin. He takes it away. He heals the wounds that made the place for the sin. And he heals the wounds that the sin has, co has caused. And your sin and my sin have wounded ourselves. I've wounded myself by my own sin. I've wounded others by my own sin. Christ redeems it. He takes it away. That is the fullness of salvation. That is going home. That's this end of the journey that we're on. The Father's house, the house of the Father, where sin has been removed from us. And we're fully redeemed. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That's the journey. That's where God's taking us. Now that process will be helped if we understand the components that are part of us. And, um, you know, come to Ephesus and see if we get a chance to talk more about that. I'm going to pray, and then we'll have an opportunity for questions. Lord Jesus, you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we are so grateful that you came for us. And we are so grateful that your salvation is complete. You heal, you redeem, you transform. Holy Spirit, we bow in your presence. 
We entrust to you now these words that have been spoken. Holy Spirit, remove, we pray, by your grace and mercy, whatever was not from you, and solidify in our understanding that which was from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it's been a full day, and we're aware that it's a little after nine. So we don't want to go long. But a number of people have asked, could there be an opportunity to interact with the teaching? So we want to take some time to do that now. So what questions do you have about that? There's a lot there. And again, if there's anything that comes across to you as controversial, that is not in any way, shape, or form my desire on that. Uh, maybe a question would help clarify it. What, what, what questions do you have about that? Jason. Okay, let's talk for a minute about baptism. Yeah. Yeah, the question is, what role does baptism have in what I was talking about tonight? Okay. This morning, we shared with each other the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed was formulated as early as the second century. It was a baptismal creed. It was formulated in the day when for a person to be baptized could mean persecution and even martyrdom. So there was a real um, commitment to preparing people for baptism. Baptism was seen as the um, um, introductory into the Christian life. And baptism, a part of baptism was also seen, or put another way, the receiving of the Holy Spirit was seen as part of baptism. It was part of the initiation. The understanding was that you were prepared you were baptized, and after you were baptized, you went through a service of receiving the Holy Spirit, and after that, you had your first communion. Because in the early church, there were two parts to the worship service. There was the worship of the word. Everybody was invited to that. But then there was the sharing of the communion, and that was only for the baptized believers. That wasn't just for anybody. So that, that understanding of baptism is based on the apostolic formula of Acts 2. Men and brethren, what shall we do? That's what the Jewish crowd said to Peter once he proclaimed the gospel. And the answer was, repent, be baptized, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. And so the understanding was... This is what baptism is all about. Once we go through the waters of baptism, we should expect, based on the promises of Scripture, that we will receive the Holy Spirit. And so there was the service of receiving the Holy Spirit. And then once you receive the Holy Spirit, there was the taking 
of your first communion. So in those days, Jason, baptism was seen as part of this process of formation. And the Holy Spirit was also seen as part of this process of formation. And there was no thought in anybody's mind that you could be a Christian without having received the Holy Spirit. That just, it was, so, I don't know if that gets at your question, but. So, the historic church has a lot to teach us. There are treasures embodied in the historic church. Yes, there's also error. Yes, we also have error today. <laughs> but there are treasures in the historic church, and that helps us in this whole process of reconciliation among the different streams in the body. Other questions? Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, did you hear the question? It's the question about Acts 8, when there were those that had believed in the Lord Jesus or been baptized in the Lord Jesus, but had not yet received the Holy Spirit. Um, boy, I, I don't. Thank you for that question. <laughs> I'm going to defer to somebody else if they want to answer that question. I, I, I don't know a good answer. Um, um, obviously there is the plan of God and then there is the practical realities and so not everybody who even in our day has believed in the Lord Jesus and received him has received uh, the Holy Spirit in the way we'd like for them to receive it and so there is God's pattern God's chosen pattern and then there's the realities that we all have to deal with that's my best answer on that. Thanks, Rick. Okay, time for one more. Sorry. Amy. Yes, yes. Thank you, Amy. That's a great, thank you for that. That strengthens us. Thank you for that. I think uh, what, what Amy is saying underscores for us the significance of the Trinity, particularly in the area of um, 
spiritual warfare and of the preparation of believers and of this whole process we're talking about of uh, going back to the house of the Father, the role of the Trinity. I think it's time to close in prayer. Well, it's been a good day and a long day, and there's uh, all kinds of discussions that could go on. Um, I just, uh, tomorrow we're going to be at Red River Church. Uh, actually, for the next two days, we're going to be at Red River Church. And if you need some uh, directions on getting there, uh, I know Jason can give them to us, but who else can help us with? Just raise your hands or somebody around you if you need directions. Talk to these folks who've got their hands up on how to get there. Uh, and we just, uh, saying that causes me to uh, just, uh, I don't know how to say it adequately, thank you to all of you here at the House of Prayer and all that you've done to facilitate uh, last night and today. And uh, we recognize that that did not come without a cost to you of incredible energy and planning and, and so forth. And we're so, uh, I think all of us are really enriched by um, all you did. So thank you very much. Uh, as you go tonight, go with expectancy uh, for uh, both the night and for tomorrow. Some of you picked up copies back here. There's some on the table. There may be uh, others that, um, that uh, David and Grace have prepared for us. A suggestion for early prayer that you can either do on your own or uh, if you're rooming with some people, you can do that. And, um, and then we'll be coming together uh, at Red River uh, as early as 8.15, if you would like, for... Uh, coffee and tea, though the tea, you know, Jason's got awfully high standards for what the tea should be, and, uh, and fellowship with each other. So um, that's 8.15, and then 9 o'clock we'll start with, uh, with worship again. So uh, bless you all. Let's take a, just a moment of prayer of thanksgiving to the Lord for the day. Uh, why don't we stand to do that? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you thanks for this day that uh, you created, gifted to us, that you dwelt within in our midst. We give you thanks and we give you praise. We ask for the night ahead restoration. We ask that you would speak to us in any ways that, uh, that you need to, that, uh, that we need to hear you. Uh, we ask for refreshment. And, uh, and safety as we travel from place to place. And we give you thanks and praise. In the strong name of Jesus, amen. Um, you can leave the prayer books here, and we'll gather them and bring them over to Red River in the morning. Um, you can also take them with you if you like. Just remember them to, to bring them in in the morning. And if I could have four or five volunteers who are feeling somewhat fresh and strong. It will take a very short time for four or five of us right now to reset the space so that the groups tomorrow can use it. Uh, it would take one of us a long time. And so I'd appreciate a few volunteers just come up to the podium here and I'll give you instructions and we can very quickly uh, return the space to how it can be used tomorrow. Thank you. <laughs>